Well, good morning, Bethel. At least those of you who couldn't find a campground. First class seating this morning, huh? Stretch out. Um, if you would take out your Bibles and open to Proverbs chapter 4, uh, that's where we're going to at least start this morning. And uh, if you would, bow with me and uh, let's pray, please. Our Father, we uh, thank you for our nation. We thank you for its um, independence uh, from tyranny, Lord. We thank you for the many freedoms and liberties that we enjoy, chief among them, uh, the right to worship, Lord, freely, without fear, without constraint. Uh, We also recognize, uh, God, that our civil liberties, uh, including our religious liberty, is uh, now and probably uh, forevermore under attack. And uh, so, Lord, we pray for our nation. We pray for the, uh, our current uh, leaders and current administration, Lord, that they would seek you and be servant-hearted leaders. Uh, we pray, God, for the upcoming midterm elections, uh, that those who will um, step forward and, and be affirmed, God, that they would be um, servant-hearted leaders and not driven by self-interest. Uh, God, we pray uh, for judges um, that will be elected, God, that they would be wise and discerning, that they would value, Lord, the sanctity of life. Uh, we pray again that our religious liberties uh, will find advocates and uh, those who will defend uh, from against attack. Uh, Father, we pray that we would be uh, subject to our leaders, but that we would know who our true leader is and our true hope and trust, who is an almighty God, not a nation and not a man, but our triune God who is eternal and whose kingdom will come fully. Uh, so may we be good citizens in the here and now, but may we know that we are citizens first and foremost of heaven and honor you with our lives. Uh, Lord, as we turn to your word now, uh, teach us again. Uh, Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Uh, use your word to change our lives and to form us into the people we ought to be. Drive it home deep into our hearts that we might be willing to change. Uh, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of my uh, annual summer projects, uh, probably with several of you, uh, is uh, to bring my lawn back to life each summer. Uh, I don't know if you're a lawn guy or a lawn gal, uh, but if you are, you know that taking care of and nourishing and and sort of uh, dealing with the Fairbanks lawn is a full-fledged battle. The elements are not in our favor. And uh, my family can tell you that I can frequently be found looking out of our house in one of two windows. One is looking out the back towards my woodshed to see how the wood harvest is coming in for the summer. Uh, the other is looking out the front over my lawn to see how it's greening up and hopefully thickening up and coming in. And July 4th is always my, it's kind of my line. It's kind of the marker where I say the lawn should be fully established and healthy now. And so we're coming up on it. I've got a little work to do, but we're nearly there. And so I'm a little bit of a, of a lawn nerd, and um, I don't mind admitting that. Um, 
This year I put down my early fertilizer to green it up and get the root system going so you don't have to water as much. And then I noticed dandelions were coming in this year pretty bad and a little clover that I've been fighting for a couple years now and it seems to be getting worse. So I put a weed and feed on it this year. So I went and got the bag and I brought it home and I set it up and I'm the kind who, you know, reads the instructions. And so I'm looking at this, how to apply um, this particular bag of, of weed and feed and it it says the things you might expect. It says, you know, wait a day or two after mowing. And then it goes on to say, for best results, apply to a wet lawn right after it's been watered or after a morning dew. And I thought, okay, I've got my instructions. I'm waiting. The next morning I woke up, 5.30, because I did. And I looked outside and it had just rained. And the lawn was just glistening. And so at 5.30 in the morning, I ran outside and sipped open the bag and threw it in the little spreader, and I'm out there just clumping along, just as happy as can be, because the, the conditions are perfect for best results. I'm going to get them. I'm sure of it. And uh, actually, that was what caught my attention out of this little uh, escapade here, was that line on the instructions on the bag. For best results, apply the contents this way, under these circumstances. And that really could be the subtitle for the book of Proverbs. For best results, apply these contents this way. Not guarantees, not absolute, not without failure or anomaly, but for the best chance of success, for best results, this is the way to navigate life. Uh, This morning we're going to look at one of the great themes throughout all of the wisdom literature. Wisdom literature being Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the book of Job. And we're going to be looking at one of the great themes, which is sort of the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And this runs uh, through the thread of all of those, uh, those books. And once again, we're going to see how these four books really work together uh, to describe life and its features uh, from different altitudes. I've kind of tried to set that up. In other words, Ecclesiastes looks at life from 30,000 feet up, from a vantage point, Noticing sort of the general patterns and cycles and the way things kind of go in life. And Proverbs and Psalms look at life from more or less the street level. How do we navigate from here to there? How do we get through this kind of situation? And how do we do it in a way that is honoring to the Lord and before his eyes? And then as Paul Holmes said uh, memorably last week, that Job describes life from 10 feet in the ground, right? 10 feet underground. And so we kind of see how these different elevations uh, uh, kind of help us understand how the wisdom literature speaks. Uh, And I think this framework holds up again as it relates to our topic this morning on sort of the righteous and the wicked. Psalms and Proverbs extol us to work with the grain in living life, living a righteous way of life in keeping with God's instructions and in his ways uh, to match his design of the way life is meant to be. In Ecclesiastes, the teacher looks at life and he's bothered because the pattern doesn't always hold up. And he sort of complains from his vantage point, from his aerial view of life, why do the righteous sometimes suffer? And sometimes the wicked succeed. And so his complaint at looking from 30,000 feet is it doesn't always go that way. There are exceptions. Sometimes it looks like the system breaks down. And then Job, in Job we find the righteous man 
who finds himself overwhelmed by calamity. And his friends, so-called friends, abuse him uh, with a faulty worldview, having absolutized the proverbial principle they have now kind of reversed it upon him in condemnation. If life did you bad, you must have done bad. And they absolutize that upon him in a kind of a manner of retribution. And um, I remember Pastor Paul teaching through the book of Job maybe 12 or 14 years ago. And uh, he got to the end of chapter 2. And there we find this, this uh, passage in uh, chapter 2, verse 13, where his friends, having seen all of the calamity that came upon him, uh, it says that they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Seven days and seven nights, they said nothing and just sat with him. And Pastor Paul went on to say, that if only the book had ended there, they would have gone down as the best friends in the history of the world. <laughs> but alas, they spoke. <laughs> they spoke. And they abused their friend with their faulty and absolutized worldview, which was really one of retribution. And so by drawing attention to this, what I'm doing here, I hope that you can see that is absolutely good for us to read a book and to know it well and to know its message well, but we also need to see how books work together in concert, uh, particularly books of a, of a genre like the wisdom literature. And we find uh, in them together a composite picture, a collective message. And so the message we get really from the wisdom literature, all these books together, sounds something like this. From the everyday street level, we are encouraged to live a righteous life from the Psalms and from the Proverbs. But as the sage will tell us in Ecclesiastes, it doesn't always go the way we want it to. Life isn't mechanical. You can't just pull a lever and get a result. And when it doesn't go the way we want, the book of Job teaches us to look upward and to cry out, Oh God, help me to trust you when the righteous way didn't produce the results that I had wanted. Um, but we are in the book of Proverbs, and our message comes from there this morning, and it does give us the best chance to enjoy the goodness of life. It is the book for the best results, apply contents this way, and so that's what we're going to look at starting in verse, chapter 4, verse 18. And we'll start our discussion on the contrast of the righteous and the wicked. The path of the righteous is like the morning sun shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Uh, I think this, these two verses just paint a very vivid picture. This is a proverb that we as Alaskans can relate to, right? This lands for us. Anything that speaks of light and darkness, we got that, right? We, we can appreciate that. And uh, not just that there's a contrast here between light and dark, but I particularly like the image of a growing light. A light that intensifies both in its illumination and in its warming and life-giving properties. A growing light from the morning light to the full light of day. And this made me think of an experience I had a few years ago. I try to go into Denali Park every year for a, um, a solo, tr uh, solo prayer retreat. 
And a couple years ago, I took some pictures from uh, my trip, and uh, I had set up my tent in this uh, little canyon and kind of on a little knoll, and uh, you know, went to bed, and the canyon cooled down. And in the morning, I got up, and it was pretty crisp, and I made myself a little uh, cup of coffee, and I sat down and faced the direction. I knew the sun was coming, and I sat there in the darkness and kind of watched the uh, canyon wake up. I watched the light come around. And so this was my morning picture, uh, sitting on the knoll uh, and beginning my time in prayer. And, you know, it's such a sweet feeling when that sun comes out into the open and you see it and it, it just illuminates everything and it warms up the air in the cool canyon and it dries out the dampness and you can feel the thermals leave and you can feel the sun on your skin and your skin begin to warmth and it, it's invigorating. And so this was, this was the morning light, and then this was about midday. There's my tent, and the sun's coming around a little more into this particular canyon. Still kind of morning, but, but the, the sun is, is moving my way. And then finally, here's the full light of day. And it was so beautiful and so warm and so clear that I hiked up to the top, and I could have a 360-degree view of, of the area. What a gorgeous place. If you don't spend time in Denali Park, you are missing one of God's great gifts that's right there at our doorstep. So there's a little commercial for the parks. Um, but this is what came to mind, uh, these, these images and this memory when I read this proverb. The path of the righteous is like the morning light growing ever greater until the full light of day. Um, and that's the way it is with the righteous. And I think one of the things that this image kind of reveals for us and shows us that is borne out in life is that choosing the righteous path and the righteous action often comes with some initial costs. It's usually the harder path, the narrow path. Uh, it's a decision that comes with costs and, and it's difficult when it presents itself. Paying the right amount of taxes means letting go of something I want, right? Something, I had, something else I had hoped to have. Telling the truth means sometimes saying I did wrong. Being honest about myself to somebody else, it can bring about humility. Sometimes telling the truth is, quite frankly, hurtful to the person we need to tell it to if it's about them. Doing the right thing oftentimes means there is a sacrifice on the front end. But righteousness, usually emerging as the harder way, pays its dividends down the road down the line. And sometimes we can't even see when they'll come, but it's down the line. Uh, this made me remember uh, when Amy and I bought our first home. Uh, this was a long, it's a long time ago now. It's like 15 years ago now. And uh, we bought a little home over in Hamilton Acres, and uh, we paid $128,000 for it. So that gives you a little picture of what that Fairbanks home looked like. It was a little rough. <laughs> and so we went... Uh, over after the closing with our key in hand, ready to walk into our first home together as a couple, excited and anxious. And we opened the door and walked in and were immediately greeted with the fact that this place had not been cleaned. And as we walked in, we began to look around the home and not only had it not been cleaned, it had not been fully moved out of. They basically took the things they wanted to keep and left behind the things they did not care to have. So we had a pile of their leftover trash. There were clothes 
strewn about here and there, little piles that hadn't been finished up in the move. There was a microwave on the kitchen counter with something in it. I don't remember the contents. There was food in the refrigerator and dishes in the sink. And we walked around like, who does this? <laughs> Nobody, like this is what you do to the person you hate, you know? And, and so we were just kind of like, you know, we're, we're rookies at this. We felt taken advantage of. We felt hurt. And we called our realtor and said, hey, I don't think it's supposed to look like this. And he came over and looked at it and immediately got on the phone and called their realtor. Their realtor came over and looked around appalled. And within just a few minutes, she thrust into our hand a check. It was a check that we had written for the remaining fuel that was in the fuel tank. You know how this goes when you buy a home in Fairbanks. I don't remember the exact amount, but it was somewhere between $500 and $1,000 that we had bought the remaining fuel for. And she took it and she said, this is yours. They don't deserve it. And we were kind of startled by that, like, wow, that doesn't quite seem in keeping with the contract here. I'm not sure what to do about this. Uh, that's really tempting. <laughs> you know, you just fork over all this money, you close, you're feeling broke, you're scared, you've got a mortgage now, and now someone's thrusting you back something like $500 or $1,000, and that was really tempting. And we talked it over, and we came away with sort of two conclusions. Number one, we thought anybody who leaves a home like this is going to be a pain to deal with if we don't uphold our end of the bargain. And then secondly, we thought, we said we would do this, so we'll do this, and we'll keep, we'll keep our word here. Now, some of you are thinking, that's pretty naive of you, um, and maybe it was, but I want to tell you, the reason I tell you this lengthy story, um, when we sold our house, we did really well. And it wasn't because we had picked an awesome place or were so strategic or really smart about all of this. I believe firmly that God honored what was a hard but a righteous decision. And I want to tell you, we don't always make those decisions. This was a moment where I thought that one, that was right. And I really, really believe that God honored that. Um, the path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter until the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They don't know what makes them stumble. And so this passage, I think, kind of introduces in Proverbs this, this theme, these contrasts of righteous and wicked and how this works out. It helps us to imagine when the hard decision is in front of us, that there's the full light of day ahead of us down the line. It invites us to take that path and make those difficult decisions. As we move on in Proverbs chapters 10 through 15, really kind of pick up the pace discussing the theme of the righteous and the wicked. Uh, don't worry, we're not going through all five chapters. But we will look at chapter 10 if you want to turn there now to kind of see this theme developed. And at this point, I want to give you a bit of a definition uh, of the righteous man. Uh, again, because if we just read Proverbs alone, all by itself, we might be tempted to say, well, this is the path to self-righteousness. This is how we get to where God wants us, and then we'll be just fine. But I think when we look in the Old Testament, 
we ha- and, and we see it all together and see the theme more broadly, we have a little different understanding of who the righteous man is. And I want to touch on this first and you'll see it develop. The righteous man in the Old Testament is not the one who is perfect, but the one who has taken refuge in God and in his ways. Through striving to do right, the righteous are those who have been truly reconciled to God through repentance. They strive to do right, but they know they're reconciled to God through repentance. In the New Testament, we learn that the basis of our forgiveness is Christ's death and resurrection. The wicked here are those who have hardened their heart against the Lord, and they go about things in their own way. And so that's something I want you to understand as we talk about the contrast here moving forward. Look with me at uh, verse 10, or excuse me, chapter 10, verse 1, and we see the introduction, this comparison of the wise son and the foolish son. A wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son brings grief to his mother. Ill-gotten treasures have no lasting value, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. And so the first principle that I would draw out here, I think, is this. The Lord provides for the righteous, but he thwarts the wicked. And I think what is, what is sort of teased out here is really how one deals with our appetites, our desires, our longings, our cravings, whether they be food or possession or position or power or relationship. Whatever our appetite is, whatever our longing is, we see here that the wicked person pursues them without reservation, without question, without circumspection, without wisdom. Theirs is a ready, fire, aim approach. To want it is to go get it without thought or without concern for whether it is what the Lord would want for them. Uh, Their treasures are ill-gotten, and we're told they won't last. They won't last, partly because of the manner of their appropriation. But the righteous, in contrast, tempers their cravings, their appetites, their longings. They temper their wants. They weigh out their desires. They trust ultimately in God for their needs. And they find ultimately their satisfaction through him and in him. Supremely in him. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. And then I think there's a natural progression here from appetites uh, to wages. Uh, If you skip down a few verses, look at verse 15. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city, but poverty is the ruin of the poor. The wages of the righteous is life, but the earnings of the wicked are sin and death. I think the principle taught here is that wages empower both good and evil. Uh, I think the way these two verses are kind of put together, they make it a little bit challenging to understand. Uh, And I think they make us sort of ask the question, well, wait a minute here. Is money good or bad? Which is it? Uh, It's like a, a Dickens novel, right? The Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And the over, overly literal reading is, wait, wait a minute here, which one was it? Can't be both, right? And I, and I think the same, the, the, 
the author here is doing the same kind of thing. It's, it's put together by way of teasing out a question. It makes us ask, how should we feel about money? Is it good or is it bad? And I think the upshot here is that money in itself is neutral. It's amoral. Not immoral, amoral. It's not bad to have it. But having money or one's wages or one's earnings will absolutely magnify the heart condition of the one who has it. Now there is power and agency and ability to act and to transact. I think money becomes a magnifying glass for the true and real condition of our heart. It will show up. Um, Money is like energy or like electricity. Uh, When properly harnessed for good, it can be very, very good. When left undisciplined, it can be very, very bad and detrimental to our souls. All you have to do is think about all of the stories that you have heard, and I won't even bring them forward, but all the stories you've heard of those who win the lottery, what happens to them? People who maybe tend to live a bit of an undisciplined life and suddenly have a windfall of resource, and they don't have the character to hold the wealth, and it ruins them because it magnifies the heart. Uh, Elsewhere in Proverbs, we were taught this, this same kind of principle Uh, In 1311, dishonest money dwindles away, but whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. Uh, The idea here is that hard-earned money is something that is held onto and nourished and and defended because one knows how it came about. Quick scores and windfalls are often lost or frittered away because one never had the character to earn them in the first place. And so I think what we're meant to take from this is that We're to work hard for our wages. We're to be workers worthy of our wages. And the reality is that our wages and our wealth will absolutely reveal our heart's condition, righteous or wicked. The third point here we see is uh, similar to the effects of money upon us uh, in the way that money reveals our heart is that the overflow of the mouth reveals our heart. What comes out of our mouth reveals the condition of our heart. And this is, of course, something that Jesus taught in the New Testament. Look at verse 19. Sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver, but the heart of the wicked is of little value. The lips of the righteous nourish many, but fools die for lack of sins. Ah. This reminds me of just the everyday earthly proverb that we all know, right? Which is, better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt, right? You know this one? I mean, the shortcut to just people thinking you're wise is just don't speak. Just remain quiet. At least maybe they'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Uh, Proverbs says the same kind of thing. Even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. Uh, I've heard somebody else say, and I can't remember uh, who said it now, so if you, if you happen to know, please do tell me after the service. I've never had to apologize for something I didn't say. I like that. Can't remember who said it, though. Um, but honestly, as, for me, this was the part, this was the part in, the, in the chapter 10 that really hit me personally. Uh, this particular line here, the lips of the righteous nourish many. 
but fools die for lack of sense. Uh, the reason why is because I'm a verbal person. Surprise, did you know that? Uh, um, and so this kind of teaching throughout the scripture here and elsewhere has, is both scary to me and inviting. Because uh, I know that God has given me um, some verbal and communication gifts. But as with all of us, our strengths are our weaknesses. And I'll say it this way. I, I can find my words. I can say what I want to say. I can communicate for better or for worse. And so if there's a moment or there's an occasion and something has got my ire up, I don't have to look for my words. They come running. And sometimes I wish they hadn't. So that's a hard thing. Um, you might, some of you might be sitting there thinking, I wish I could find my words when someone really hacks me off. You know, uh, There's pain in finding them too. Uh, I like to speak. I love to teach. It is my uh, heart's passion. I love to instruct. I like writing notes and letters. Uh, to, I've written to many of you. I like group discussion. I genuinely like elders meetings. I like going to an elders meeting and sitting down with a group of wise men and putting a tough issue on the table and working at it together and sparring over it and trying to figure out what is the wise course of action and how do we ground this in the word of God and for the good of his people. I love that verbal exercise and doing that um, together. Uh, I like pastoral counseling. I like listening to you and attending to you and trying to advise and this, this little phrase uh, is a good one for me to catch me up. The lips of the righteous nourish many. What a, what a great phrase for us to consider in our various speaking roles, whether it's with our family, with our spouse, with someone we're sharing Christ with, at our work, you know, at the neighbor and their loud barking dog, or the annoying cat that keeps coming into our yard. <laughs> Do our lips nourish? Uh, so here's the question I think we can kind of use as a bit of a gatekeeper for our words. Will these words nourish or should I hold my tongue? Is this choice silver or am I just a babbling brook? Once again, our speech will reveal our heart. Just like our wages and our resources will reveal our heart, so our speech does. The fourth sphere that we look at here is our inner life. And I think what we're taught in verse 24 is that our inner life will lead to our outer reality. What the wicked dread will overtake them. What the righteous desire will be granted. When the storm has swept by, the wicked are gone. But the righteous stand firm forever. And I think one of the things this shows us is that the wicked, those who have closed their heart against the Lord, who are going their own way, know they're doing so. Their conscience speaks against them. They know when they have done wrong and they are holding oftentimes guilt and shame and heaviness. Their conscience is working against them. They have an uneasy conscience. This is a gift of God. This is a work of the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so our conscience speaks against us. And I think this is one of those things where we see even the nature of sin and why God has cautioned us against us. 
against it. Sin is not this arbitrary list of things that God has just decided whimsically, you know, don't do that, 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 or that. He's not just saying, you know, I'm trying to rob you from a little fun here. So let's not do these things. The things that God has cautioned us against are those things which are absolutely detrimental to ourselves and to his people and to the world and to his name. He's not robbing us of joy. He is leading us to the path of real and lasting joy. Soren Kierkegaard talks about the cost of non-discipleship. We sometimes think that discipleship is costly, and it is, but he, he warns us of the greater and heavier and more painful cost of not walking in God's ways. He says it costs a man just as much or even more to go to hell than to come to heaven. Narrow, exceedingly narrow is the way to perdition. And so the conscience that God has put within us is a gift. It is something that helps us consider our inner life and it tells us something of our outer reality, something which will come. The wicked, what the wicked dread, yes, what their conscience is speaking against, it will overtake them. But what the righteous, those who are walking in God's ways desire, it will be granted. The Lord's kingdom will come. And I, all of these principles, I think, are really well displayed in a classic novel, which maybe very few of you have read. I don't know. How many of you have read Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment? Can I see hands? Like, yeah, six or seven. You guys are better readers than first service. I'll give you that. So well done. I've started it four times. I haven't finished it yet. And uh, I get about half or two-thirds of the way through, and I, and I think, I get it. He's sick. He's suffering. I get it. I don't need to read anymore. But actually, it's a really interesting book. I mean, Fyodor Dostoevsky has a great picture at, the, at just the nature of mankind and the burden of sin and shame. Because here in the beginning of this book, we have a man by the name of Raskolnikov who commits a crime. And the rest of the book is about him suffering under the guilt and shame of his crime. Uh, it's interesting, his name, Raskolnikov, actually means split or schism or fracture. And I think Dostoevsky chose the name intentionally because that is the picture and the portrait of his life under the guilt and shame of his crime. He thinks he needs something. He takes the shortcut. It doesn't go his way. And he lives from then on as, in a sense, the position of the wicked whose inner life becomes his outer reality. His conscience beats him down and he does become the fractured man that his name indicates. Or if we can sort of leave the Russian novelist and come all the way forward to a, a good capitalist, the economist Adam Smith said, what can be added to the happiness of a man who is in health, out of debt, and has a clear conscience? We move to the last point here. The outlook of the wicked is transient, but the righteous are secure. Verse 28. The prospect of the righteous is joy. But the hopes of the wicked come to nothing. The way of the Lord is a refuge for the blameless, but it is the ruin of those who do evil. The righteous will never be uprooted, but the wicked will not remain in the land. From the mouth of the righteous comes the fruit of wisdom, but a perverse tongue will be silenced. The lips of the righteous know what finds favor, but the mouth of the wicked, only what is perverse. And I think this last section here really speaks of the trajectory of a person's life. 
their prospects, what they're aiming at, what they're looking forward to, what they're heading towards. And we might say this, the, white, the, the wicked and the righteous are ultimately revealed, exposed, laid bare. Um, I appreciate the use of the word joy here in verse 28 because joy is very different than happiness, right? Happiness is how I feel maybe in the here and now. But joy is something that is lasting beyond the, the present moment. Joy looks at this moment in light of the future and chooses the better course. It chooses the hard road which results in the greater destination. And this reminds me of what the author of Hebrews says of Jesus in chapter 12. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. If he was looking for momentary happiness, he would have skipped the cross altogether. But it was his joy that we would be reconciled to God and that our sins would be punished in him. It was his joy to take it upon himself that we might be restored to our God and our rightful belonging. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That is the prospect of the righteous. It is the long-term trajectory. It is aiming at what is better, not what is easy. It is even willing to accept the momentary suffering. And so I think the closing thing I would have you understand here is this. There's no hiding your true heart, your true character. Uh, the pressures of life will absolutely bring it to the surface. Uh, in your needs, your appetites, in your wages, and how you handle the resources God has given you, in your speech and what comes out of your mouth, your inner life, which will become your outer reality, and your future hope, your prospects, which you're ultimately aiming at. Our true heart condition can't be hidden. It leaks out. It will be revealed uh, through the pressures of life. So the invitation is incline your heart to the Lord and his ways. For best results, apply these contents in this manner. Choose the path of righteousness. Now, I'd like to end there, but I can't. Because here is my great fear. That we would come out of Proverbs and think, good, I got the self-righteous way. I know how to make myself good before the Lord. It's just do good things. That is not the message of the scriptures. Good Bible readers, good interpreters will interpret any particular passage in light of the whole message of the scriptures. And it is to be read in harmony. And when we look at, again, who the righteous person is in the wisdom, we, in the wisdom literature, we know that the righteous man makes these God-honoring choices. They take the narrow road of integrity, not the right road of easy living. The righteous man may not be perfect, but he trusts in the Lord with his needs, his wages, his speech is nourishing to others. He entertains good and wholesome desires, producing for him joy. But if we look at that list and these five spheres of life that we've just worked through, each and every one of us knows we've come up short. And we probably will again. So we need something other than our self-righteousness because we're not going to make it. And so I, wanted to, I want you to turn with me to Psalm 32, if you will, real quick. And we're going to turn our attention now from the Proverbs, really, to communion. But we're going to do it by identifying the gospel in the Old Testament. 
In Psalm 32, we see, the, we see this. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. So here's the ideal. This is what we long for. This is what we want. We want to be right with the Lord. We want to know that our sins are forgiven, but all of us know that we have them. So what? So what do we do? Look at verse three. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. This is like describing Dostoevsky's Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment, suffering under the guilt of our own sin. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. There's the turn. This is what we need. We want to be forgiven, but it's not through covering in self-righteousness. It's by bringing our sin into the light and confessing it to our God who longs to forgive. He goes on. I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad you, who is it? You righteous, seeing all you who are upright in heart. But who is it who is righteous here? Is it the man who lived the perfect life? It is not. It is the one who was willing to come before the Lord in repentance and faith and trust in him. That is who is righteous. So Proverbs would tell us the wise course of life, but the only way to be truly righteous is to take our sin, confess it, repent to the Lord, and receive his grace and mercy. And then as we move to the New Testament... We find the basis of that forgiveness, not in man's effort, but in Christ's sacrifice, which we remember this morning.